Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDB's Law War Journal. And this is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers what used to be known as the global war on terror and what we call the long war. Today, we're going to do something different and take a look at the war in Ukraine. Joining us today is John Hardy. He's the deputy director of FDD's Russia program. The Long War Journal is going to be expanding its coverage to include Russia, and John will be taking the lead. In the near future, we'll be issuing written reports on the fighting in Ukraine and anything else uh, related to Russia and its military operations. John, welcome to Generation Jihad. Hey, Bill. It's great to be with you. Yeah, John, I really look forward to working with you on this project. It's a, uh, uh, It's been a something we've been discussing for a while. And I, I think the, you know, I'm really glad to get started on this. Uh, so today we're going to examine the current state of the fighting in Ukraine. We're going to take a, we're going to start off at the, take a look at the tactical theater level of the fighting. And then we'll end the, the podcast with the look at the strategic uh, issues related to the fight in Ukraine. Um, obviously the big, the big story right now in, in uh, Ukraine is, Ukraine's uh, stunning counteroffensive in Kharkiv Oblast. Well, before we even get into the details of that, this really went under everyone's radar. Everybody was focusing on Kurasan. What happened here? How did how did this all develop? Well, yeah, it's a great question, Bill. I, I think to understand the context, you really have to go back to that uh, you know Kherson Oblast offensive that you mentioned and Russia's attempt to preempt it. So. Um, in the months before the Kharkiv Oblast counteroffensive, Russia redeployed a substantial amount of forces that they had in the east um, towards the south. Um, this is the Zaporizhia direction, as well as uh, towards the western bank, on the western bank of uh, the Dnieper River. So a lot of the eastern military district forces Russia had near Zoom in, uh, in, in, in Kharkiv Oblast were redeployed there, leaving um, you know, Russian lines in, in Kharkiv really, really thinly left Russia very vulnerable. Um, there, there were Russian telegram channels warning that Russia's position there was vulnerable and that Ukraine was conducting a, a buildup uh, in, in, in preparation for a potential counteroffensive. But uh, uh, fortunately for Russia, they sort of, you know, the, the command didn't really um, uh, re- uh, deploy reinforcements in time. So um, by the time Ukraine launched the counteroffensive, the front line was just very thinly manned and the front line broke very quickly. So do you think the Russians were aware that this was developing and were too slow in redeploying uh, or in getting its reinforcements to the area, or were they just caught off guard? Well, so I think they're definitely too slow. You know, whether they uh, had a good idea maybe a week ahead of time, you know, that's possible. But you know, it, it takes a substantial amount of time for Russia to, to redeploy forces on exterior lines from the south back up to the east. So um, even if they did have you know a week or so, a few days of heads up, um, that really wouldn't be enough time. And Russian military bloggers on these Telegram channels have been warning of a buildup there for you know maybe a few weeks. Um, so if, if the Russian general staff had been paying attention, then it could have been possible to to, to head it off. But you know for whatever reason, um, they, they didn't decide to do so. Uh, it's really hard for me to say from from my vantage point whether they just didn't know or whether they were just complacent. And, and, you know, uh, about the threat. Now, what was Ukraine, what was the Ukrainian military doing in the lead up to this offensive in, in the Kharkiv area? 
Um, were they shaping the battlefield, uh, redeploying forces? How do, you know, I'm, I'm still, I guess I'm a little, still a little bit stunned that the, the Ukrainians were able to deploy such a large number of forces and, and the Russians just weren't capable of countering this. But yeah, talk to, talk to us a little bit about, uh, the, you know, how the Ukrainians shaped the battlefield for this operation. Sure. So yeah, in the weeks uh, ahead, in the days and weeks ahead of the Kharkiv Oblast counteroffensive, uh, Ukraine did conduct you know, some, some shaping operations targeting the Russian rear, things like C2 nodes, ammo depots, fuel depots, things of that nature, um, essentially laying the ground for the counteroffensive. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, there was a, a substantial buildup there. I think the ultimate um, force for the counteroffensive was around four to five brigades, um, in, in addition to soft and, and things like that. So um, there, there was a substantial force uh, that, that flowed there, as well as, as, well as south of the zoom. So, uh, and just quickly, read, uh, listeners, if you don't have a map in front of you, I, I would suggest pulling up a map real quick. This will be a sort of a geography-heavy podcast. But um, And if you're driving, don't pull up a map, just listen right. to us. Um, uh, so south of the zoom, basically, if you're looking at the map, um, zoom is a key uh, Russian headquarters and logistics hub um, for the push towards Levant. And then uh, Kupiansk, which is above of, uh, north of Izum, is sort of the logistic hub that feeds that, right? So um, basically what Ukraine was doing was attacking um, the western flank of that um, sort of spear going at Slovyansk. And when did the actual breakthrough here occur? Talk to us a little bit. Just a, You could go into a little bit of detail of how... When did we actually see that this, this was developing and that the, that the Ukrainians were able to break through? Right, so it, from what it, uh, it looks like, Ukraine massed some armor, maybe about 15 tanks or so for an initial uh, breakthrough force um, that, that broke through on September 6th in a suburb um, northwest of Palaklia, um, and then rapidly um, sort of exploited those gains. Like I, like I mentioned, the front line there was very weak, manned uh, primarily by uh, mobilized separatist forces, very low morale, very poorly trained and equipped. And then there was also a couple of Russian Guardia units, Russia's, Russia's National Guard, uh, meaning the second line. Um, again, th- these units are, are really not trained or equipped for heavy combat. And they have low interoperability with uh, their, their Russian artillery support, which reportedly uh, was a problem. There are also some forces from Russia, Russia's Western Military District, um, uh, maybe even parts of the uh, 8th Combined uh, Arms Army, part of the Southern Military District. Uh, in the area, but overall, a very thinly manned area for Russia. Uh, a bit surprisingly so, considering how critical um, that northwestern flank was to the Azum uh, um, axis. So it, it seems to me that what the Russians' plan here was that they basically put up a tripwire with a poorly trained, poorly, a poorly trained, poorly manned tripwire. They felt that they could have rushed reinforcements in when needed, very likely rely on artillery, air, et cetera, to suppress a Ukrainian advance. Would you agree, disagree with that? So I don't know if I'd say a tripwire. I'd say overall, across the battlefield, Russia has a severe man, uh, manpower problem. And we might touch on this later. Um, but just quickly now, I think they're, they're running into a situation where they just don't have enough forces, especially well-trained and equipped forces, um, to spread across the entire battlefield. So, of course, we saw them flow uh, forces to the south. Um, really across the, the battlefield, they've had to rely on uh, you know, LDNR separatist forces, Wagner, paramilitary group, 
um, um, other forces like that to man the front lines, lead assaults while they try to um, preserve their heavily degraded um, regular units. So um, I think this is a problem Russia kind of encounters across the across the battlefield. And, you know, this is where they left this area particularly lightly man. So and I'm going to jump to a bigger issue here because I think this is a good point to bring it up. The Putin has described this war, his war in Ukraine as a special military operation. I think one of the biggest problems that we've seen here is an unwillingness to go to treat this as an actual war. Um, this is fortunate for the Ukrainians, uh, in my opinion. Uh, he hasn't called up reserves. He hasn't conducted a draft. He hasn't committed the number of forces needed to fight on multiple theaters, on multiple fronts in this operation. And I think this is really, you know, causing, I, I, I think we have two things here. The, the unwillingness to, to properly resource, Putin's unwillingness to properly resource this war and this idea that it would be a cakewalk for him. Would you agree or disagree with that assessment? No, I definitely agree. You know, what, what he thought this war would be going in is obviously def- very different from how it turned out. It's somewhat a banal point at this, at this juncture, but yet, yeah, no, what's, what's so remarkable is that he, um, you know, is just not willing to treat this as a true war. Um, many within the, the Russian security uh, commentariats are, you know, have been complaining about this for months. Um, he, ref- he still wants to treat it as a so-called special military operation, which um, precludes him from tapping um, additional uh, sort of forms of manpower, conscripts, maybe even a partial mobilization, um, which, which could help allow Russia to continue this war more effectively. Uh, Russia has been sort of trying to rely on these piecemeal efforts, um, you know, recruiting uh, volunteer battalions, um, Wagner, LDNR forces, etc. But, uh, you know, eventually you sort of um, run out of additional people you can, you can tap in those ways. And actually, you might end up um, degrading your ability to take more drastic measures like introducing conscripts, doing a partial mobilization, uh, precisely because um, the, the, the Russian regular forces that would be used to um, sort of form those, those volunteer battalions are the same forces that you'd need to you know, train conscripts, uh, uh, train uh, mobilized personnel. So I think Putin, by trying to muddle through, is actually uh, constricting his, his future options. All right, John. So over the summer, the Russians did have some progress in Luhansk. They were hitting the Ukrainians hard. Ukrainians took significant casualties in uh, Luhansk um, province, and the Russians advanced through several cities. How does the Kharkiv um, offensive uh, impact any gains the Russians may have had? Or, or do you think the Russians can proceed from here, or are is this are there gains that they had over the summer um, under threat? Sure. So I think first it's important to put in perspective um, uh, the relative gains. So uh, what Ukraine has gained over the past few days it has far exceeded what Russia gained over those many months. And I think more important, at least uh, during the second phase over the summer, uh, more important than. The, the towns or villages taken were the, the relative losses on both sides. And Ukraine, as you mentioned, does some very heavy losses. Um, you might remember news reports, Ukrainian officials during that time, um, you know, talking about those losses very openly. 
Um, but you know, Russia also took heavy losses as well. And I, I think ultimately what was important is Ukraine was able to weather it and they have an overall manpower advantage compared to Russia because you know they've mobilized their entire society. Um, they have lots of uh, you know, untapped, uh, mobilized manpower. Not all of it is, is very well trained, but you know the UK and others are trying to work on that. Um, but so they have this manpower advantage. And so in this war of attrition, um, they're basically you know, emerged uh, in a better position, taking in uh, Western military equipment to uh, you know, equip uh, additional units um, and, and emerged from the second phase, I think overall in a better position. They could start to capitalize on Russia's um, increasing manpower problem. How, and how did, so how did particularly, how did uh, this operation impact Russia's ability to take the Slovyansk and, and Kremtorsk? Um, this is, the, these are two key cities that the, Russia needs to conquer the Donbass. So I would, I would rate this as being the, the Russians' ability to take these cities as, uh, as being slim to none at this point. What are your thoughts? No, I, I definitely agree. Um, I think they would have had a tough time doing it, um, even before the Kharkiv counteroffensive, and now they definitely will. And actually, uh, as you alluded to, you know, Ukraine, uh, what they're able to accomplish is actually put them in a position to threaten um, the Russian positions in Luhansk. Um, uh, out of the gains they, that Russia paid so much for during the summer. So Ukraine is able to cross the, the river and um, it's pushing towards the Man, and will probably push to, uh, towards Crimea as well, which is a, a key city, um, a key town near a Severnet. So um, Russia is definitely um, under threat in that area. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think it's, uh, this is a stunning and um, a major victory for the Ukrainians, uh, what happened here. Um, we'll get more into the bigger picture later, later on and what the impact this is for support from the West which I think is a key issue is particularly as we go into the winter, but we'll talk about that a little later. All right, let's, let's pivot uh, now to the Kherson offensive. Um, tell us, first of all, what's the strategic importance of, of Kherson um, for both Russia and Ukraine? Sure. So, you know, as listeners probably know, this was um, uh, Kherson city was taken on, taken very early on in the war. Um, it's the capital of that region. Uh, it's got great economic importance uh, due to its uh, geographic position, um, as well as obviously political significance for the reason I just described. And militarily, it's sort of the gateway to Nikolaev and Odessa. So um, it, Russia, frankly, doesn't have much of a chance of taking either of those cities as we stand, but um, taking back uh, Kherson would sort of put the nail in the coffin. The Ukrainian military has been telegraphing the, the Kherson offensive for, for months. Um, a lot of deployments. I think we've seen a lot of the U.S. weapons and, and Western weapons being deployed in this region. Um, when did the Kherson offensive officially begin and what has been the impact of that operation so far? Sure. So um, as listeners probably know, um, the Ukrainian military uh, officially announced it on the 29th. Uh, might have begun slightly before that, but you know, essentially that's when it kicked off uh, officially. In terms of you know, round, but Ukraine, of course, had been conducting um, extensive shaping operations um, in the weeks and months before that, um, especially targeting a couple of key bridges, a few key bridges that, that Russia the Dnieper and Hulitz rivers. So, um, Russia, uh, Ukraine is essentially trying to degrade Russia's ability to supply its troops there um, and sort of uh, weaken them 
uh, to the point where they eventually have to, you know, have no choice but to abandon that untenable, untenable position. I think Ukraine's really goal here is not necessarily a destructive urban battle to take a Kherson city, but to sort of split that that Russian grouping on the western bank um, and eventually um, leave the Russian command with the choice of either, uh, you know, taking mass losses or retreating across the river. The bridges over the rivers to Kherson. This is extremely important for, as you mentioned, for the Russians to to resupply to and. and to reinforce their forces across the river. Tell us a little bit of how the Ukrainians have attacked these bridges and what the Russians have been doing in order to counter this. Well, uh, so as, as listeners know, the, the U.S. and its allies have transferred HIMARS, uh, you know, MLRS systems um, to Ukraine that, that Ukraines have been using extensively to target these bridges, very precise um, systems, longer range than, than Ukraine's um, own uh, rocket artillery systems. So. Um, Ukraine has been using these systems of great effect to degrade these bridges. Um, they're either inoperable or very, very close to it. Um, for a while, the Russians and Ukrainians sort of played a game of strike the bridge, repair it, you know, and repeat the cycle. Um, I think at least on one of the bridges, the Russians are still trying to repair a little bit. Maybe there's some very, very small volume going across it, but essentially these are um, mostly knocked out for the Russians. Which um, again, like I said, Ukrainians hope will eventually squeeze Russian logistics to the point that you know they're forced to abandon their position. And the Ukrainian military has been targeting Russian air defenses. Talk a little bit about that. How how effective has um, the Ukrainian military in being in suppressing Ukrainian air defense systems? Right. So in, in part, using uh, harm missiles supplied by the United States. Um, they're trying to, the Ukrainians are trying to degrade uh, Russian air defense coverage and turn free up um, Ukraine's own manned and unmanned aircraft, uh, the latter being especially uh, the TB2 drones from Turkey. So it, it seems like they've been you know, at least somewhat successful in, in that effort. Um, Ukraine does seem to be um, conducting these for a relatively high um, air up tempo, again, you know, for the Ukrainians, considering the, the limited number of aircraft they have available. Um, it does seem like they've they've focused their air uh, resources uh, in, in that area. Talk about the there's three main axes um, in this fight in Kurosan. Talk a little bit about that. What are the areas and where have the Ukrainians had the most success? Sure. So the main one is uh, is basically a, br- a bridgehead uh, near Drivka, uh, Lazov kind of area uh, over the Nihilitz River. Um, this, this is, again, the main sort of push. The others are being up in the north, coming from the direction of Rig, and the other uh, being sort of towards the left, uh, coming from Nikolaev. Um, in, in the central axis is where the Ukrainians have had the most success, uh, maybe pushing, I think the Ukrainian uh, Southern Command spokesperson said tens of kilometers. I think that's about right. Um, you know, expanding the bridgehead somewhat, fairly modest gains, but... Um, this will probably be a fight that plays out over the coming weeks and months rather than a, a lightning a counteroffensive like like the one in Kharkiv. Yeah, it seems the Russians are, I mean, obviously redeploying forces from the Kharkiv region has uh, helped the Russians stabilize this front somewhat. So how would you overall describe the Ukrainian gains in this area? Um, what, what, would, what would your assessment be of this operation in general for, for the, uh, at the moment? It's it's modest gains, but you know, again, because of of the like you said, the Russian force availability there, 
Um, and I think the Ukrainians probably anticipated that, um, I think, which is probably why that they're taking the approach they are. Um, but again, the hope is that by splitting um, this Russian grouping, um, you can sort of cut off a large portion of Russian forces and eventually uh, force them to abandon their, their positions there. Yeah. You know, one thing I think we've seen with both Kiev and, and Kharkiv is that once the Russians realize that they've lost in an area that they're not going to have, I think, I think what the Ukrainians are doing here in, in Kurson, if it can be effective, um, is that the Russians just seem to abandon these positions. They, um, they have, have no, uh, concerns about just fully abandoning these positions. Uh, and it's, uh, so I think what the Ukrainians are doing here can have effect if assuming that they can, they can have success in this operation. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, the Russian uh, command, uh, would, would rather do that and take you know, mass losses. Um, but, you know, of course, I think they'll try to hang on by their fingernails while they can. I've heard reports that the Ukrainians were taking significant losses during the Kherson offensive. Do we have any information on the losses of both the Ukrainians and the Russians? I've seen reports that the Ukrainians took took some significant losses in armor, um, particularly. And, and uh, what, are you, what are you seeing on this? This is one of the most frustrating things, I think, covering this, this war is trying to get good information. Both sides are, are playing a very effective uh, game of concealing information. Uh, what is your take? What do you, what does your gut tell you about how the, the both the Russians and Ukrainians have fared um, casualty wise and, and things like lo- losing of armor and significant equipment? I'd say the Ukrainians have taken some losses. It's definitely not as much as the, as the uh, Russian Ministry of Defense, you know, likes to say it. it's, it's press releases, but um, yeah, no, it's significant. I think there, there was a Washington Post report that's particularly revealing about some of the losses. And I think it, what it shows is, is these are not debilitating, but they are significant. And I think they, they show that Kherson, despite the claims of some folks and even some Ukrainians officials, I don't think Kherson was sort of a diversion or deception, in, at least in the Ukrainian general staff. I, mean, I think this is you know, a well-resourced counteroffensive. Um, as is the one in Kharkiv Oblast, and the difference in outcome is really down to you know, where Russia decided to allocate its forces. Yeah, that, I, I think that's a that's an excellent point, John. You know, I have seen reports. You know, was this a was Kherson a, a, a feint? You know, it allowed them. The, I think more so that the Ukrainians just capitalized on the Russian weaken, weakness in Kharkiv in order to launch. Uh, you know, it, it just it's it exploited an opportunity. Just tell me what you think about that. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And I, I think the Ukrainian defense minister said as much. Let's talk about what's been happening outside of, of Kherson and, and Kharkiv. Any other areas of, of the battlefield that you want to discuss? So we already briefly discussed the, the you know, other parts of Luhansk uh, Oblast where Russian positions now under threat. So I think no need to, to recover that. But um, essentially elsewhere, it's mostly a stagnant battlefield. We had, we've seen some. Uh, both before and after the Kherson counteroffensive, we saw some uh, sort of localized Ukrainian counterattacks um, in the Donbass, in the, the Zaporizhia and Vuldar areas. Uh, and I think we, we may see some activity in the latter two um, in the weeks ahead. There are reports on both sides that, uh, that both sides are building up their forces there. Um, so we, we may see, you know, again, some sort of 
movement on those fronts, but it's a, it's a, just a little bit too early to say. In terms of the Donbass, it's, it's really mostly been stagnant. The Russians are still trying to push towards Bakhmut, um, but you know, front lines there really haven't moved in weeks. All right, let's move on to the, to the big picture here. I think the key question here is who can sustain the fight? Uh, I think Russia's key constraint is manpower. Ukraine seems to be weaponry, uh, particularly Western supplied Western weaponry. They're now going to have to, the Ukrainians are going to have to rely more on Western weaponry, um, as it's depleting its old Soviet stockpiles. Um, where do you think the trend, uh, lies here? Um, is it in the favor of the Ukrainians? Is it in the favor of the Russians? So I see the correlation of forces going in Ukraine's favor. I think this has been the case for some time now, and it's starting to really come to a head. Um, I think we'll we'll probably continue going that way, especially as uh, Russia, as I mentioned earlier, runs into some some more problems with these piecemeal manpower generation um, solutions. And uh, actually, a lot of the the, the volunteer uh, troops that Russia was able to recruit for lucrative short-term contracts earlier in the war. Well, those contracts, many of them may be running out soon. So there's a question of uh, retention. Do these, do these guys want to you know, continue in this hard uh, slugfest of a war, or do they want to you know, sort of take their money in and go back to Russia? Um, I suspect many of them will choose the latter. And you know, among the regular forces, uh, many of them are not willing to come back. If they do get a, you know, a short rotation out of the battlefield, often they want to stay there. Um, and so there's been lots and lots of reports you know, probably even thousands of, of regular Russian troops uh, refusing to continue fighting. And I suspect that as the Russian military gets increasingly exhausted, that number will, will decline. Can, can Russia turn that around? Do they have the capability of if, if Putin called up a draft or if they mobilized reserves or redeployed forces from other, um, uh, you know, from, from the East, say, uh, do you think the Russians could? Turn that issue around. So I think Putin has options. Uh, we discussed a little bit already. Um, you know, tapping uh, the pool of conscript manpower, um, potentially some sort of partial mobilization. You know, the, the Russian military is not the Soviet military. It can't. It's not a mass mobilization army. But there is some. There's some capacity for you know slow uh, intake of of you know, some mobilized personnel. But really, the, I think the first go-to would be, would be conscripts. But you know, Putin does not really seem at all inclined to, to go that route. Like, like we t- already discussed, he's opted for piecemeal solutions that actually degrade his ability to go that route. Um, and even now, you know, there are some members of the Duma calling for, you know, like, hey, let's call a spade a spade. This is a war. Stop calling it a special military operation. Let's really go all into this thing. And the Kremlin is still saying, hey, you know, mobilization is, is Table at this point. So I think Putin probably fears domestic uh, stability risks um, if he were to go that route, which is why he's done everything in his power to avoid it. And what are the Ukrainian uh, advantages with manpower here? Talk, talk a little bit about that. Sure. So, I mean, as, as I said earlier, Ukraine has really mobilized its whole society. And it's, you know, on paper, they say a million man army. Obviously, it's not really that big. But they do have a lot of uh, mobilized uh, personnel. Again, much of it untrained. There's a, a program in the UK that's trying to, you know, train up um, you know, at least a few thousand so far of these forces. Maybe tens of thousands more in the months ahead. 
Um, but uh, Ukraine overall does have that manpower advantage, and they're able to equip additional brigades with Western dead. So, you know, over time, as as Russia's very uh, sort of goes downhill, Ukraine is trying to uh, you know, sort of the opposite direction. Yeah, I think this is this is a, a key issue here. The Ukrainians are fighting for their country. They're they're motivated in, on the defense here, where where Putin is not willing to call this what it is, which is a war, by calling it a special military operation. He can't seem to get the buy-in from, you know, he's not committing all the resources and, and not having the motivation to fight. So I, I definitely think that over time, despite, you know, issues, uh, you know, with the Ukrainians, you know, both sides at this point, they're digging deep into the well. I go back to Afghanistan. The Afghan military certainly was better resourced with weapons um, and it had a greater pool to recruit from, but it didn't have what the Taliban had, which was uh, well-motivated fighters. And that ultimately, I think, was the led to, partially led to the defeat of the Afghan government. I think we, we're, we're seeing a, a similar type situation here where despite whatever problems the Ukrainians have, um, with, you know, and, and, you know, look, what was happening over, over the summer, they were pushing in raw recruits to man the lines and taking heavy casualties. I think that was having an effect, but something like, or this recent counteroffensive in Kharkiv, that, that does, does wonders in boosting the morale of those troops, knowing they made sacrifices in order to achieve, a, you know, a strategic goal, which was to liberate the Northeastern Ukraine. So talk a little bit about the, the training that the, uh, Ukrainians are receiving. Uh, I know the, the United Kingdom is providing it and the U.S. is, are any other European countries working to train Ukrainian personnel? Yeah, a number of Scandinavian countries and others have signed on. I think it's maybe eight or so European countries so far. Um, but yeah, so the initial UK uh, target was 10,000 troops over a few months, each, uh, each batch getting you know, a few weeks of basic training. Again, these are really fresh, uh, mobilized personnel with no military experience. So just going over the basics, um, uh, you know, basic training. Um, but so recently, they've actually decided to expand the program slightly. I think um, probably with the influx of additional trainer capacity from these European countries, they, they can afford to do that. Um, so I, from what I understand, the training uh, uh, cycles will go a little longer, five or so weeks maybe get into some you know, more unit training as opposed to just basic skills. Um, and so hopefully that'll play dividends um, you know, for, for Ukraine. What, and what's the type of training? Is this just basic infantry? Is Are they getting training on armor? Are they getting artillery, air defense, or is it a mix? Right. So, so at least from the videos released on you know, Ukrainian official Facebook sites, et cetera, um, it, at least for up until now, it's looked like mostly basic but um you know i think with with the extension um they should have you know a chance to, to do go a little bit more a little bit deeper is the training occurring inside or outside of ukraine it's, it's in the uk it's in the uk yeah so thousands of ukrainians are being transported i've, I've gone through UK. so far yeah i don't okay. remember the exact number off the top of my head but yes yeah, several thousand have gone through so far um, and you know of course there's other training efforts on you know particular systems like HIMARS. Everything else we provided, you know, we, we train these uh, Ukrainian troops, Germany and elsewhere. Uh, but this program specifically is for uh, you know, mobilized personnel to try to again help Ukraine tap all that all that uh, manpower it has, the unskilled manpower, 
make it a little bit more skilled and then you know, use that use that advantage on the battlefield. Are the I assume the Ukrainians are training conducting their own basic training with the, inside Ukraine? Oh yeah, is that, is yeah, and and there's been a lot more uh, videos, in the, at least especially over the past couple of months, maybe two months of um, especially the the territorial defense forces um, getting getting more training. You know, I don't know if this is just a PR campaign, increased PR, or if there's actually more of a concerted training effort going on. Um, it, it sort of seems like the latter. Um, but again, this is just part and parcel of that effort to you know, take all this unskilled manpower and, and make it more useful in the battlefield. It's probably a combination of both, right? They, they are conducting more skilled training. Yeah, and, yeah the, and- Ukraine sort of took some, some domestic flack during the summer months we, we've already discussed in the high casualty rates, especially among these uh, ter- territorial defense personnel, uh, which often were sort of fighting on the front lines in a role they were not initially conceived for. And have the Russians been making any effort to interdict the training, to launch strikes against the training bases and things of that nature? I think this is something that's uh, somewhat surprised me over time is that we seem to be seeing fewer and fewer deep penetration strikes inside, you know, Western Ukraine, where, uh, what's your take on it? So if you remember back to the early months of the war, there was a, a strike on a training center in the West. I think there may have been one, maybe a couple more, one more maybe. Uh, but no, I mean, overall, I don't think this had a, a big impact on, on, on that front. I mean, in general, the Russian um, Air Force has, has not been very effective in this war. I mean, there, there are a few different reasons for that. But yeah, they, they haven't they've been very, very reluctant to, to penetrate into Ukrainian air defense envelopes. And um, for that reason, they're not able to um, uh, very effectively degrade things like ground lines of communication, key bridges, like a lot of Russian telegram channels are saying, why haven't we hit the bridges? Well, that's a great question. But, you know, you can, as the, as the Ukrainians have shown, it takes a lot of high precision missiles to knock out a big bridge. And, you know, the Russian missiles aren't nearly as accurate as Western ones. So because the, the you know, the VKS, the aerospace force is not able to, you know, hit it with dumb bombs, getting close to it with dumb bombs. They, they just have not been very effective from the air. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I've been, you know, it's, it's been stunning that the Russians look, and I know in some instances they have hit like train stations, yeah. railheads. Yeah, they, they've hit bridges and stuff. It's overall not very effective. But yeah, it hasn't been an, an effective campaign. I really think that, you know, the Russians seem to be their air forces seem to be committed to localized attempts to establish local air superiority and and uh air to ground um localized tactical air to ground strikes things of that nature yeah and that's and actually you bring that up in, in the Kharkiv uh oblast kind of offensive uh just from what i can tell you know open source information is always imperfect especially in the air domain but um, it did seem, and you know, in part based on, on Russian Ukrainian accounts, like the, the VKS was being especially cautious, um, in part because Ukraine had moved up extra air defenses and really saturated the area. So uh, I think that probably further degraded uh, Russia's ability to use air power to, to um, staunch Ukrainian advances. Yeah, this is where I think Western um, air defense systems um, have really helped the Ukrainians. They've really neutralized the Russian uh, abil- Russian ability to use their air forces to have both a particularly have a strategic effect in this war. Um, the, the Ukrainians seem to be able to operate behind the lines 
redeploy its forces and, and, you know, conduct logistics, things of that nature, training and, um, take weapons in, uh, you know, stockpiles. It's the, this, this is really hurting the Russians in the long run, in the short term and the long term, in, in my opinion. Yeah, the, the Western super, uh, systems of help, you know, the German, uh, uh mobile short range systems, I think, at least Ukraine would say were useful in the, in the Kharkiv counteroffensive. I think the biggest failure on that front was, you know, in, in its initial um, suppression of uh, enemy air defense campaign during the very opening phase of the war was just, you know, nowhere near sufficient. And Ukraine was able to you know, kind of move its its um, air defenses out from under those uh, strikes and have since been very mobile and agile in the way they use them. So because Ukraine has those um, long and medium, medium range systems, it forces the Russian pilots to fly very low which, you know, in turn degrades situational awareness and, and precision. Um, and then, you know, they're, of course, they're vulnerable to the man pads and the, and the short range stuff. And just to be clear, man pads are the man portable air defense systems. Um, so let's turn to the issue of, for Ukraine, a uh, key issue, um, Western military aid. Let's talk to us about the, the key issues related to Western military aid to Ukraine. Yeah, so I think as our listeners know, Ukraine is, is very reliant on Western military aid at this point. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, they've largely exhausted their stocks of uh, Soviet um, standard artillery rounds. So you know they're very reliant on, uh, on Western artillery. Um, same goes for uh, you know protective mobility armor. Um, there are many many videos of, of uh, Ukraine putting armored. Western armor, especially to good effect in the Kharkiv counteroffensive. Uh, same goes for the Hersono blast one as well. Um, and, and really good uh, combined arm, arms use of infantry and armor. But anyways, uh, Ukraine is will is and will continue to be dependent on on Western largesse. So there's reports of U.S. and European stocks stockpiles running low as the U.S. and and Western countries are supri- supplying. The, um, you know, things, everything from the multiple launch rocket system and HIMAR rockets. We've seen reports that the U.S. is I, last. I mean, geez, this was months, months ago where the U.S. had given a third of its Javelin, uh, anti tank missiles, um, supplying a large net number of, uh, artillery shells. Um, what is your take on, do you think this is, is, is a significant problem? Or is this, is this, uh, uh, do you think this is a problem in the short term, the long term? Is this a problem that's overstated? Yeah. So at least, at least in my opinion, it's something to keep an eye on. I don't think it's a critical issue just yet. I don't think it will be, you know, at least for the next, um, for the foreseeable future. Um, there do seem, just based on public reporting, there do seem to be some, some, some issues with, um, 155 millimeter uh, U.S. stocks, 155 millimeter artillery shells. Um, but, but I think, you know, it's just based on my understanding, these problems are, the shortage is not critical. We're not getting down to a point where we'd say, oh, we got to cut the Ukrainians off. So I think, you know, Western aid will continue to flow and hopefully the, the, the counteroffensive success, uh, Ukraine's counteroffensive success will invigorate, um, you know, Western support. Uh, I think that was a big issue going into both of these counteroffensives was, well, if, if they don't go that well, Will the West sort of say, all right, well, you had your shot. Um, unfortunately, you're not able to do, you know, regain much territory. So it's time to, you know, come to a, some sort of settlement. 
Uh, I think Ukraine has clearly proven they're able to take Western aid and, and do a lot with it. So you know, hopefully that will um, continue to inspire uh, further support. How how would you define the foreseeable future, John? I always look at things. I try to always look at things as short, medium, and long term. Short term for me is about a year. Medium term, one to five years. Then obviously long term, five and beyond, or maybe like one to three for medium term. What what what, what is your look on foreseeable future? Yeah, I'm, I'm just really referring to the next few months. It's hard to say yeah, without okay. without knowing. You know, U.S. stocks of artillery shells is classified. So I don't know that. Just you know, based on my understanding, is we're not you know at a critical point for for the Europeans. You know, I, I have less visibility to their stocks, but you know, of course, the U.S. is the big benefactor. He's the, he's the big uh, supporter here. You know, what they what the Europeans provide is important, but really, it comes down to support. Yeah, one of my big concerns, and so I I think I am more concerned about this than you, but I I think you're right in the in your time frame next several months. Yeah, absolutely, this is something we could deal with. I, I'm, I'm looking at this more from probably the one, you know, six months to one year. I'm start, I start to worry about this. One of my concerns is we are depleting stockpiles and we're, we're not replacing them quick enough. Um, so as we're, we're depleting our stockpiles, we're not putting our stockpile back and then we're continuing to send aid to the Ukrainians. I don't know how sustainable that is over time, but you know, one of the things I think the, the Biden administration really should have done from the outset. I'm okay with depleting stockpiles in the short term, but we need to be uh, be cognizant that they, these stockpiles need to be replaced. And as energy costs increased, as there's, um, you know, it costs, and, and and also obtaining the resources to make these weapon systems, the cost of everything, inflation, it's getting more and more expensive to do this. I think this is why the administration isn't pushing or isn't making a push to um to ramp up production in order because again we have to ramp up production not only to restock ourselves but for future um uh, allotments to the ukrainians this is why i worry about this this issue again like i'm i'm with you foreseeable future several months yeah we could do this but i don't this isn't sustainable yeah, I, I think that's why in the past couple of packages, you've seen you know, very large packages, but they're largely uh, stuff that's medium to long term. So contracts with industry rather than more presidential drawdowns. I did think probably for that very reason, um, understanding that, yeah, Ukraine is, you know, Ukraine's needs won't stop when the last bullet is fired. You know, they're going to need you know, to be able to rebuild and continue um, taking an inventory because, you know, Putin's probably not done with this, with this, uh, with Ukraine. Uh, you know, even if this war does come to an end, um, fortunately, I think for for Ukraine, you know, Russia, Russia's stocks of artillery were probably artillery shells were probably a little bit smaller than we thought going in the war. You know, they're still very large, but they're not infinite. So Russia will have its own issues to think about. And you know, I'm sure the listeners have seen reports about Russia approaching North Korea, um, some Central Asian countries, you know, at least according to Ukrainian. Military intel- intelligence for you know, artillery uh, and rocket artillery. Um, you know, Russian Russia has a lot of armor and storage, but again, none of this is infinite. Um, so Ukraine doesn't have to last forever. I guess would be my point. If they can you know, hold out six months a year, I, I think they'll be okay. Yeah, that's that, that's a, that's a fair assessment. You know, one thing the Russians do are they're an exporter of ammunition. Um, I mean. 
avid shooter. So, um, I could still buy Russian ammunition, Russian made ammunition. Um, if they're producing it for export, I suspect they're not going to have, particularly with things like artillery shells, they're, they'll be able to, to resupply themselves. So, you yeah. Know, just, a, I, a, a, just but yeah. Based on the impression I get, I, I do think the Russian defense or defense industrial base is working overtime, but you know, no one can produce 4 million shells in a year. Right. So, um, you know, anyways, and, and they might have some you know, problems with particular inputs like you know, chemicals or there might be particularly particular classes of, of uh, like certain rock 122 millimeter uh, you know, rocket or artillery uh, munitions that you know, they're short on or for, can't produce for whatever reason. So I, I think a lot of the, the talk of you know, general uh, crisis in the Russian industrial base is, is probably overblown. At least in the very near term, because they do have stocks of of um, you know, certain inputs they can use to, to continue production. But you know, yeah, Russia. None of this is infinite, and uh, you know, Russia can't last forever in a war of attrition either. Yeah, absolutely, I, I agree. What, and I'm going to turn back to the on the U.S. production side. And you had mentioned that uh, a lot of these uh, they're they're producing contracts for manufacture, but we're not increasing our manufacturing capability. Uh, that's that's a big concern of mine, right? So are, are are the Ukrainians actually getting these weapons, these munitions in a timely fashion if we're putting it out for contract and we know that there's a, a very long lead time in the production? Um, you know, and, and another concern of mine is, you know, what if there is a shooting war and the U.S. does get involved in, say, Taiwan? Um, we've depleted our stockpiles. We're not increasing our capacity. Now that's an issue far beyond Ukraine. That's more of an, a, a U.S. defense issue um, outside of, of Europe, right? But these these are the things that I worry about. You know that we're, it seems like in a certain way we're trying to supply the Ukrainians on the cheap here. I don't think that's you know it's sustainable for as you said you know next six months. But beyond that, we, we if this really is something that needs to be evaluated by by the U.S. government and by the Department of Defense. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, though. Um, our the last point uh, we're going to talk here about the, in the bigger picture, um, the issue of the Europe Europe's energy shortfalls and and how this may impact uh, support. I, I I concur with you. The Kharkov offensive certainly is going to buoy up European support, um, but it also can push Putin to go all in on his um, on him using energy as a weapon. And let's. Let's face it, the U.S. has been using sanctions, U.S. and Europe has been using sanctions and, and using its form of, sa- or trying to use its form of energy weapon, and Putin and Russia is certainly countering with that. I, I would expect the Russians to do that. Um, I, how do you think, you know, what happens, does this situation change dramatically if, if, if it's a harsh winter? And the Europeans have to start rationing. I realize this is a little bit out of the military picture, but this is something that that um, is certainly of concern. Do the do European countries start pushing Ukraine for a settlement? Is uh, would is U.S. support enough for the Ukrainians? So it's just first off the caveat that I'm not an energy expert. However, you know, just based on what I understand from talking to folks who are. I think the European, this one will not be the worst one. Uh, it'll be that, I guess, the next one when it's sort of exhausted the storage and then you know, Russia really sort of has them over a barrel. Um, but you know, I, it'd be very tough for me to see 
the Europeans walking back from their commitments, uh, at least in like a very dramatic way. If French could put some quiet pressure on Kiev to stop the war, frankly, I think you know uh, Kiev would respond. You know, stick it where the sun don't shine. I don't think (laughs) Macron is going to be able to leverage Zelensky very much. And you know, European, like I said before, European support is important, but. Again, it's it's U.S. support that's really the, the key one, and you know I don't see that going away um, because of uh, Putin's energy war. Yeah, and I definitely think what we just witnessed over the last week is is going to to boil up the efforts to support Ukraine through the winter. I think it's going to be a hard winter for the Europeans. They're already talking about rationing. Energy costs are high. Uh, I think that protest we saw in. In Prague was quite significant. Certainly all uh, things to keep an eye on. Again, John, uh, thank you so much for joining us. uh, And I look forward to our our next report on this. It's great to have you. Great to talk to you, Bill. All right. Thanks again, John. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you could find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.